okay, so it totally was clickbait. But I wanted to talk about really deterministic Christian thinking. I saw a Facebook post today about, uh, it's on a Facebook group called Soteriology 101, and it really is a bunch of people who don't like Calvinists, I guess. I, I think that's a good way to put it. But I'm part of the group because I, I feel like it gives me a, a different way of looking at things, especially since I kind of come out of a, a very reformed Calvinistic subculture church group, which I think it's good to just listen to and think about things differently. But the purpose of this video is to respond to something I've seen growing over the years, I guess, in a lot of my peers. I'm personally not a Calvinist. At least I'm non-Calvinistic. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the title kind of gives it away. Really, if you, it, really it's determinism. It's a, it, Calvinism is a, I guess you could call it, maybe it's a doctrine or a system of thinking about the Bible uh, created by John Calvin around the time of the Reformation. And he wrote about this in his books, The Institutes, uh, the, what is it called, Calvin's Institutes. And so in that, he articulates a lot of his theology. And part of that is what grew into uh, Calvinism. And uh, Arminianism was the response given years later by um, a man named Jacob Arminius and his followers. Or there, There's quite a bit of history there. I'm just kind of briefly summarizing it. But the thing is, is that really what I've seen in a lot of Christian subculture and universities and places I've been is what I want to call the an unbalanced view of God, where we we view his omnipotence at the expense of his omnibenevolence. And so I want to talk about that today. What does that mean? And and how does that maybe change things systematically? Like, how do we see God's love, his justice, because of this uh, unbalanced view? And so this isn't really an in-depth explanation about Calvinism and Arminianism. It's more of a perspective. And I want to advocate for, like, just for us as we move forward, just Christians um, and people with questions about Calvinism and Arminianism, like how to look at these things in a balanced way uh, 500 years later <laughs> after these things were originally written and articulated. Um, and I think there's a there's a mature way of discussing them that isn't going to shame other people. People are very aggressive <laughs> when it comes to debating Calvinism, Arminianism, and these kinds of things. And the reason is, is they're trying to rightly defend the glory of God, the the likeness of God, who God really is, and so that's why people get so passionate about it, uh, but they can bite and devour their Christian brothers and sisters in the process, and I don't think that's a good thing at all. And so uh, a few, I want to talk about, let's say about two things, two main points, and that's really the rules of logic and faulty starting points, and then second, an unbalanced character of God. And so those are kind of the two big points I want to talk about in specifics to uh, hyper-Calvinism and these kinds of things. The first thing is rules of logic. I want to talk about the tulip of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So when you talk about the five points of Calvinism, that's what they're referring to, the tulip. And I want to talk about rules of logic because what that tulip is, is it's really a system of logic with a starting point in T, the total depravity. And I want to talk about how it's really where you get into the argument with, with uh, people about this is really starts with how do you define depravity? And that's the starting point because the rule, rules of logic are neutral. To give an example, people outside outside the church have logic, but they're dealing with what I would say lies. Okay, so the Bible is the book of truth. Okay, so an atheist doesn't believe in God, but he has a logical reason for that. But he at, at some point, he has a faulty starting point. 
Like he says there is no God or there's some presupposition in his thinking. He denies the prophecies of the Bible. There's something in there that is a lie, but the rules of logic are neutral. You know, A plus B equals C. Thus, you know, so you can, it's, what I'm trying to say is Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, they're logical. Like they make sense of one another. The problem is, is how do you define your terms? And really the, the first term, that, I mean, really, the only term I'm really going to talk about right now is just the T of total depravity, and I'm not really going to get into it. I'm not really going to get into it too much, but the idea is that when you talk to a Calvinist, I, I title it, you know, I'm elected to hell because God elected me to hell because it's essentially man. When God reveals something, man also lacks the ability to respond to something, and I completely reject that because one of the first, and I would like to look at the Garden of Eden for this. One of the first agencies or divine ordinances given to man is human agency, which is that man can understand, be fruitful and multiply, and thus uh, is held accountable to it. And now post-fall, I would still say the same thing applies. Now, when, when it says no, no one seeks God, no one no one does what's good, I think that's in Isaiah. It's also quoted in Romans by Paul. That doesn't out. That doesn't mean that when God reveals Himself, that doesn't mean that man is unable to respond. Now, if God never reveals Himself, then man is lost still. But that's where total depravity, kind of that discussion, breaks down into. So that's where I would disagree. No man has the when God reveals Himself through uh, natural revelation, man can respond to that, and thus God will send special revelations so they can be saved. And I, I mean, we see this and hear about this in, in lots of countries where their missionaries are going in Islamic countries. There's a lot of cool stories. Um, and then second, uh, when when you, we hear special revelation, so Jesus died for your sins, believe, and he's the one who reconciles you to, to God, you can choose to reject that or believe. And further adding to that, I forgot where it is in John, but it says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so this is, so I believe God has to convict you before you can respond, but it doesn't mean you can't respond. See what I'm saying? So the Calvinists will say, no, you have to be completely God. And really what they, what it comes down to is their interpretation of the term regeneration too. And this is when the Holy Spirit creates a new nature in you. And they'll say this happens before faith. So John MacArthur, I believe, will say something like, you know, pray for the gift of faith. Uh, I believe it was him who said that. So you can't just have faith. you got to pray for the gift of faith because they'll interpret Ephesians. You know, they'll, the, and, and by the way, gift is neuter in Greek and uh Faith is feminine, so they don't line up. So you can't do that. And later in, in Romans, it talks about the gift of eternal life. So that's what Paul's referring to. It's the life. But anyway, so that's that's the faulty starting point, I'd say, of Calvinism is how they define depravity. And you become unable to respond. So, and that's kind of my personal opinion. Again, I'm not trying to refute this openly. And I have a lot of friends who are Calvinists. I just don't, I, I mean, I, I would be comfortable, like, if I redefined things, maybe as like a four or three point Calvinist, but definitely not limited atonement because you got to, completely reinterpret stuff like John 3.16, God, you know, loves the world and sent his son, he desires all to be saved, and I think in, in Timothy and then Peter, you know, wants all to come to repentance. So you, you got to like really jump around those kinds of things. But the main point of this video is to talk about how like systematically when we accept, like if we accept Calvinism, and I, and I have some examples, it's not just really Calvinism either, but it's really just like systematically when we accept like hyper-Calvinistic hyper determinist deterministic position how does that paint the character of god and really what i've seen a lot is people just say oh who are you oh man to judge you can't understand god's justice or love his ways are above your ways you're right but i also want to rightly divide scripture and there's a term called uh, uh, the perspicuity of scripture i believe but what it means is god has what god has revealed 
in the scripture and through his revelation is knowable. Meaning when it says, I believe it's in, it's in Timothy's first uh, Timothy, I believe it says rightly divide the word of truth. It means that we can do that, which means I, we as Christians have the complete ability to ask these questions and wrestle with these things because God has revealed it. We're not saying that his judgment and ways are above our ways. They are above our ways. But what I am saying is we can understand what God has revealed. And when we think about this, God has revealed the divine mind to the human mind through the medium of human language. Meaning, this is why you get into. This is why you have to study language and the Greek and the Hebrew because these are the. This is the the autographs when when uh, the Holy Spirit in, inspired and wrote through, and not just inspired, but like like wrote. We'll just say when God authored the Bible through people using their human agency and divine agency. That's another topic. He used the medium of human language, meaning it it's it's meant to connect the divine mind to the human mind. Okay, the words have ideas behind them, we're supposed to understand those words. So when God says love, mercy, justice, he expects us to understand what those words mean, at least in the biblical understanding too. And that's why we study how does God use those words, because God's the mind behind the entire Bible. How does he use those similar words? And so, uh, and that's called the perspicuity of scripture. And before moving on to really the character of God and how, and this would be my opinion of how I see hyper-Calvinism, how it, I would say it doesn't represent the true glory of God. And while they're overemphasizing his sovereignty, they actually detract from his love and his the agency he gives us. It actually detracts, it actually distorts his justice, which is ironic because that's what they're always arguing for. In my opinion, I, I mean, at least with the people I've talked to, I want to talk about the pe- like a pendulum. If It seems like when we have people who are living in sin, we want to respond, oh, that's a cheap grace. You know, these people aren't saved. We need to, we need an angry God who judges sin and talks about how awful sin is. And then when we very legalistic Christians, it's like we swing the pendulum back over and we, oh, we have to talk about the love of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God. And these are like the two primary characteristics, God's holiness and love, that I see both, like really both of those things. I feel like everything, it seems like everything flows out of that, like love and holiness lead to his justice, right? Because he's holy he's perfect. He has to judge sin because he's perfect. And this is the, the imperfection, but then also love. It's, it's like, I love my creation and I see how it's wrong and it's loving to punish. It's right to punish the one who has hurt my child. Right? So when we see someone abused, right, we, we have this like sense of like righteous rage, righteous wrath. And so this is essentially also what God does. But, but to be honest, this all gets culminated holiness and love in the cross, right? We see this perfect expression of love and yet it's the triune God satisfying his own wrath on himself to reconcile the world to himself out of love for love. So it's a really beautiful picture there. But but you know, and then when you start saying things like, Well God has elected you to hell, you don't know. And I've talked to people on the streets with there used to be a street evangelism thing. That was honestly kinda awkward at Moody. I'd always tell them, you know, people <laughs> People kind of think we're like the Mormons, you know, just kind of like, oh, come. It's just, it's a different culture. People don't respond to that as much. I mean, people do. And we, I did see God show up in a lot of ways, but a lot of times people were just uncomfortable. But um, not to detract from that. I'm, I'm, hey, go and do it. I'm, I'm just saying it, it. Sometimes it was awkward, but but God moved. But, you know, I talked to people and they're like, well, how do I know that? Or I, I was also watching something. I was like, how do I know I'm not one of the elect? And it was interesting because there's these people coming out of like a very hyper-Calvinistic church or something, deterministic church, and they... They didn't think they were elect, and they just kind of left it at that. And so I see that this these doctrines or systems can have effects even on the unbelieving world in the sense of how they perceive God. And we have to rightly, as Christians, rightly divide the word of truth so we can rightly present who God is, who he really is. And I, it really comes down to this analogy. You know, you know, uh, Muhammad's God, Allah, would we could say he's omnipotent too. But what's his character? And that's the key. What is the character of God? It seems to me that 
we talk a lot about the power of God, the omnipotence of God. And I, I lump into that his omnipresence, omni, uh, omniscience, omnipresence. Those are aspects of his omnipotence, right? The power to be everywhere, the power to know everything, and the power to do anything. But is he omnibenevolent, all good? And that's something that a lot of like devotionals, or you're all powerful, God. We all know, I'm like, well, yeah. And I, and I would come back and say, well, isn't, isn't Allah technically all powerful? But the Christians would say that's a false God. That's not the correct, that's not who God is. God is not Allah. God is love. And that's actually a big thing in Islamic communities. Like, well, God is love? Really? You know, and so that's that's a foreign concept to them. So, and the, the analogy I can think of is like, you're on, you're on, at your school campus or you're at work and, or you're at work and someone says, oh, there's a man with a gun. Well, what do you think? Fear, right? Well, well, who's the man with the gun? Is it a security officer or is it a uh, robber or a terrorist or something? The point is, is that it's like the gun represents power, but the the identity of the person makes a total difference, right? Like a security guard is there to protect you, right? He has a gun. He has power. Omnipotence, we'll call it. God has the power. But what's his heart? Is it to hurt you and harm you? Is it for his own agenda? Or is it? Or is he good? He's there to protect and good. And what's interesting is, and I was listening to someone the other day, he says, God is love. And what is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13's definition of love? Can you put God into the, that, those slots? God is not proud. God is not self-seeking. God is patient. Or what about you? Is the Christian, you too are to be that way. You know, Robert is love. Robert is patient. Robert is not proud. Robert is not self-seeking, these kinds of things. And can you do the same? And so when we look at that, I'm just trying to see the bigger picture. When you get into a lot of, you know, you read some of the Calvinist systematic theologies and things such as that, you'll start to see like, you know, God only really cares about his divine image in you, but there's nothing good in you and, and you're so worthless. And they won't say worthless because you'll have the divine image of God, but you're just a sin, you know, you're a sinner and you deserve hell. You deserve hell. You deserve hell. You know, this, this, is, the, this is the mantra, the kind of thing that gets said over and over. But it's interesting because I just, I see a bigger picture in scripture. And it seems almost that in, in modern culture, and again, in some of the former videos I've made talking about like a response to carnal Christianity, lordship, salvation, and stuff where we front load stuff onto salvation, it seems sometimes people 